If you have your Bibles, turn with me to First uh, Kings chapter eight. First Kings chapter eight. We're continuing our study this week in looking at God's house and Solomon's heart uh, as Solomon makes a dedication of the temple to the Lord. And as he does his dedication, he is speaking about uh, the temple and the the value of it. Uh, It was Abraham Lincoln who said, fellow citizens, we cannot escape history. He made that, uh, those words, he spoke to the American Congress on December 1st, 1862. And no matter where the Jews are in the world or what century it is, uh, they have their roots in Abraham, Moses, Jacob, David, and so forth. And Solomon refers to God's covenant with his fathers, to Abraham, to David, uh, to Moses. He refers to these here in this. And so we're looking at this. What kind of house, uh, as Solomon's making this dedication to the Lord, we looked at it two weeks ago, uh, on a 3D modeling that someone had in a current rendition of what they thought uh, based upon the scriptural uh, details given of what the, the temple would look like. An incredibly opulent place, very beautiful. And so here we find here in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 22 uh, through 53, a little bit lengthier passage, but I want you to under, uh, look at this as we go through it really uh, with respect to Solomon and prayer. In verse 22 of 1 Kings chapter 8, And Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation and spread forth his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven above or on earth beneath who keepeth keepeth covenant and mercy with thy servants that walk before thee with all their heart, who has kept with thy servant David my father that thou promised him. Thou spakest also with thy mouth, and hast fulfilled it with thine hand, as it is this day. Therefore now, Lord God of Israel, keep with thy servant David, my father, that thou promised him, saying, There shall not fail thee a man of, in my sight to sit on the throne of Israel, so that thy children take heed to their way, that they walk before me as thou hast walked before me. And now, O God of Israel, let thy word, I pray thee, be verified, which thou spakest unto thy servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold the heaven, and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have builded. Yet have thou respect unto the prayer of thy servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to hearken unto the cry and to the prayer which thy servant prayeth before thee today. That thine eyes may be open toward this house night and day, even toward the place of which thou hast said, my name shall be there that thou mayest hearken unto the prayer which thy servant shall make toward this place. And hearken thou to the supplication of thy servant and of thy people Israel when they shall pray towards this place. And hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and when thou hearest, forgive. If any man trespass against his neighbor and an oath be laid upon him to cause him to swear, and the oath uh, come before thine altar in this house, then hear thou in heaven and do, and judge thy servants, condemning the wicked to bring his way upon his head and justifying the righteous to give him according to his righteousness. When thy people Israel be smitten down before the enemy, because they have sinned against thee, and shall turn again to thee, and confess thy name, and pray, and make supplication unto thee in this house, then hear thou in heaven, and forgive the sin of thy people Israel, and bring them again into the land which thou gavest unto their fathers. When heaven is shut up, and there is no rain, because they have sinned against thee, if they pray towards this place, and confess thy name, And turn from their sin when thou afflictest them. Then hear thou in heaven and forgive the sin of thy servants and of thy people Israel. 
But thou teach them the good way wherein they should walk, and give rain upon the land which thou hast given to thy people for an inheritance. If there be uh, pestilence, blasting mildew, locusts, or if there be caterpillar, if their enemy besiege them in the land of their cities, whatsoever plague, whatsoever sickness there be, what prayer and supplication soever be made by any man, or by all thy people Israel, which shall know every man the plague of his own heart, and spread forth his hands towards, toward this house. Then hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and forgive and do and give to every man according to his ways, whose heart thou knowest. For thou, even thou only knowest the hearts of all the children of men, that they may fear thee all the days that they live in the land which thou gavest unto our fathers. Now, notice with me what he's saying here as he's going through this. He's saying, God, if we mess up here, please forgive. God, if we, if we do wrong here, please forgive. And so he's continually understanding uh, and taking recognition that, listen, we mess up. But he says, God, I want you to still hear us. So Solomon understands the character and the mercy of God going on here in verse 41. Moreover, concerning a stranger that is not of thy people Israel, but cometh out of a far country for thy namesake, for they shall hear of thy great name and of thy strong hand and of thy stretched out arm when he shall come and pray towards his house. Hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place. So again, and do according to all that the stranger calleth to thee for, that all the people of the earth may know thy name to fear thee, as do thy people Israel, and that they may know that this house which I have built is called by the name. What is he saying here? He said, God, if there's a stranger that comes to, to Israel, comes to Jerusalem, and they pray in the temple, then God, please hear them. Because we understand that he's not a God of just the Jews, he's a God of all people. So again, we see in the very dedication that this temple is for all people. If thy people go out to battle against their enemy, whithersoever thou shalt send them, and shall pray unto the Lord toward the city which thou hast chosen, and toward the house that I have built for thy name, then hear thou in heaven their prayer and their supplication, and maintain their cause. If they sin against thee, for there is no man that sinneth not, and thou be angry with them, and deliver them to the enemy, so that they carry them away captives unto the land of the enemy far or near. Yet if they shall bethink themselves in the land whither they were captives, and repent and make supplication unto thee in the land of them that carried them captives, saying, We have sinned. And have done perversely, we have committed wickedness. And so return unto thee with all their heart, with all their soul, in the land of their enemies, which led them away captive, and pray unto thee toward their land, which thou gavest unto their fathers, the city which thou hast chosen, the house which I have built for thy name. Then hear thou their prayer and their supplication in heaven, thy dwelling place, and maintain their cause. And forgive thy people that have sinned against thee, and all their transgressions wherein they have transgressed against thee, and give them compassion before them who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them. For they be thy people, not inheritance, which thou broughtest forth out of Egypt from the midst of the furnace of, of iron. That thine eyes may be open unto the supplication of thy servant, unto the supplication of thy people Israel, to hearken unto them in all that they call for unto thee. For thou didst separate them from all, among all the people of the earth to be thine inheritance, as thou spakest by the hand of Moses thy servant, when thou broughtest our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. What a tremendous prayer. And he stands here, hands lifted up, and he's praying to the Lord in heaven. Now this was a practice there in the early church, 1 Timothy 8, I will that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. The word heaven is used a dozen times here in this passage 22 through 54. And we find in this entire passage that Solomon is understanding, listen, God, we want to keep our hearts towards thee. 
If we mess up and, Lord, you put us into captivity, we understand. He's acknowledging that with sinfulness comes judgment. He understands that, listen, strangers are going to be coming over here and they're going to put their faith in you. We understand that we are your inheritance to the nations to give forth the truths of who God is, that people, all people may turn to God alone. I mean, the Israelites of yesteryear of, of the Old Testament were the evangelists. They were, the, they were given the Great Commission, essentially, to go forth and broadcast of the great God and how magnificent He is. Solomon opens his prayer with a covenant-making and, and covenant-keeping God. He said, there's no God like thee. He then refers to God's covenant with his father, David. Now, the ultimate fulfillment of this promise, obviously, is sitting on the throne forever, is in Jesus Christ, Acts chapter 2 and Romans chapter 1. Now, Solomon prays, he's overwhelmed by the contrast between the greatness of God and the insignificance of the work. And, you know, the, and, you know and early on, even there in verse 22, and the first portions of this passage of Scripture, you know, uh, verse 27 but will God, are, God, you made the heaven of heavens, and are you going to dwell in a house that I built? Like, of course not. But the presence of God is there amongst his people. And so he understands. But he says, Lord, I built a house, but it's so insignificant compared to you who built the heaven of heavens. I mean, verse 27. Solomon expresses the same truth to King Hiram that before he began to build in Second Chronicles chapter 2, verse 6, about uh, the Lord in a house and who can contain him. Stephen refers to these words, uh, words, and Isaiah defends himself before the Jewish council. Paul emphasizes this truth when preaching to the Gentiles that, about Solomon building a house, and that it's God's house. And he also realizes that God's willingness to dwell amongst his people and to be in a place where they would congregate together. Now, the burden of his prayer, as we look here, is that he asked God to forgive the sins of his people. He knew the terms of the covenant in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 29 that if they disobey God, there will be unfortunate circumstances. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be captivity. They know this. They know that if we trespass or transgress what God has given us to do and we go into idolatry, we reject the Lord, we go into our own comfort, we do our own things, that life is going to become uncomfortable. Jonah would look towards the temple and pray, and God forgave him. In Jonah chapter 2, Daniel prayed for his people as he looks towards Jerusalem. Daniel chapter 6. It's called the house of prayer for all people. There in Daniel 6.10. Jonah, as you think about this, <clears throat> Jonah had rejected the Lord, and eventually God got a hold of him. What happened? I mean, Jonah's life became very un, uh, unbearable. Say unwhalable or unfishable, but I mean it was just it was it was a bad day. I mean he, there he is stinking in the belly of the fish, the belly of the whale, as the New Testament tells us. And Daniel, when he was given the decree, you can only pray, don't only pray uh, towards Darius. You can't pray to your God. Daniel went into his room, opens the windows, and he prays towards Jerusalem. Matthew 21, Jesus calls it a house of prayer. My house should be called a house of prayer. Mark 11, again, and Luke 19. So Solomon presents to the Lord here seven requests. Verses 31 and 32, he requests the justice in the land. Now, 
Solomon had begun by his reign by judging two women. Obviously, one woman had a child. Uh, both women had a child, and one, they, they uh, rolled over and smothered the child. The child died. And, uh, and then the other t- mother said, well, that's my baby. She steals her at the night. And the mom says, no, it's mine. And so Solomon says, all right, we'll cut the baby in half. And the real mother says, no, please give it to her. And then Solomon said, okay, that's her baby. So, but the thing is, is, you know, in verse 31 and 32, if a man's accused of sinning against his neighbor, the accused could take an oath at the temple altar and the Lord would declare whether or not the man was innocent. Now, the verdict declared isn't explained, but perhaps a priest would use the Urim and the Thummim. Years later, it was the fact that a godless kings of Israel and Judah would allow injustice in the land. The judge's responsibility in Deuteronomy 25.1, justify the righteous, condemn the wicked. Now, God does justify the, God justifies the ungodly on the basis of Christ's sacrifice. And so here in the land, Solomon understands God, he understands the heart of man. And he understands that, listen, when we go astray, we need real justice. When people, in the, in, you know, people have fights, they have squabbles, they have uh, judicial things that happen, and you go to the law for it. And he's saying, God, help us. Give us wisdom to know how to deal with conflict amongst neighbors. Number two, and he talks about verses 33 and 34, military defeat. If they've sinned in some ways and it displeased them, if Israel would obey the terms of the covenant, uh, there would be peace in the land. But if Israel sinned, then God would allow a triumph over them. But if they would be, repent, then God should, then saying, God, please forgive us. You know what, God, if we bring up an army against our enemies, and Lord, we've repented and we've done right, and we pray towards this place, and we pray to you, Lord, would you hear us? Number two, military defeat. Number three, a drought in the land. Verses 35 and 36, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain. So again, we understand that God controls the weather. God is in control of the weather. This whole thing about the climate change and trying to change everything and, and be so worried. I mean, there's a care for the earth, but nevertheless, I mean, there is the drought in the land. We have to understand that God controls the sunlight. God controls the winds and the waves, and, and God is ultimately in control. One of the most severe uh, judgments that God could give would be a drought where there's famine. I was just reading Ruth today, started there, and another portion as I'm reading through the scriptures, but in Ruth, you know, Elimelech leaves Bethlehem, Judah, because of a a drought, a famine. And there was wickedness there. But God promises his people that if they confess and turn from their sins, look with me, the latter portion, if they pray toward this place, latter portion of verse 35, and confess thy name and turn from their sin, when thou afflictest them, then hear thou in heaven. So whenever the people would obey, they would enjoy a bumper crops and their flocks and herds would be healthy and multiply. There is a lot to this. The purpose of the drought is to bring the people to a place of repentance and God promises to forgive their sins and send the rain. Now look with me at 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to look at a couple of passages of scripture here. 
the rain was withheld for the idolatry under Ahab with Elijah here. Verse 1 and 2, First uh, Kings 18. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show thyself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And Elijah went to show himself unto Ahab, and there was a sore famine in Samaria. Verse 5. And Ahab said unto Obadiah, Go into the land, unto all fountains of water, and into all brooks, peradventure, we may find grass to save the horses and mules alive, that we lose not all the beasts. Verse 17 came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, and that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. Verse 41. And Elijah said unto Ahab, Get thee up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he cast himself down upon the earth, and his face between his knees, and said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. And it came to pass at the seventh time that he said, Behold, there ariseth a little cloud out of the sea like a man's hand. And he said, Go up, say unto Ahab, Prepare thy chariot and get thee down, that the rain stop thee not. It came to pass in the meanwhile that the heaven was black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And a hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. What happened here? God held off the rain for a period of time. God is in control. The other thing we understand that as Solomon's going through this is there's other natural calamities. God warned that Israel's disobedience would bring divine discipline to them. They'd send famine, disease, insects, sicknesses, plagues, other things would come upon them. But God, you know, and he says here, look with me at 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 1 2 Samuel, 1 2 Kings, 1 2 Chronicles. So 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 13. You know the mercy of our God when we mess up? What is Solomon here saying in all of this? He's saying, God, if we do what's right in asking you to forgive us for our wrongs, then Lord, please stay or withhold or remove the judgment you've put upon us. That's what he's saying. Because he understands that it is God who allows the hardships and the justice in our life and and the injustice because of our desire to go into idolatry. Not all trouble is necessarily from sin, but many times it is because we are resisting God somehow in our lives. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 13, If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, what's he saying? In number one, he's saying, I control the weather. Number two, I control the insects. And number three, I control the diseases. Then he says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. So God wants complete and absolute confession of sin and repentance. You don't repent, you don't get God's hand withheld from you. You'll have the continual hand of God's judgment on you. So Solomon frequently mentions the land, because this is a part of Israel's inheritance. You know, when Israel begins to sin, God punishes them first in the land, as seen in the book of Judges. 
And when they persist in their rebellion, he allows an enemy to overtake them. In the year 722 B.C., the Assyrians would conquer Israel and assimilate the people. And then in the year 606 to 586, the Babylonians defeated Judah. In 586 B.C., Solomon's temple was destroyed. So, again, over and over, there's this redundant theme of judgment, hardship, pain, sorrow associated with sinfulness and idolatry. If I live my life for myself, I'm going to incur the, the wrath and judgment of God on my life. You're going to. You can't resist. I mean, it's going to happen. The other thing, number five, that Solomon prays for is he, he prays for the foreigners. They were not, these were not the resident aliens, if you would, or, you know, foreigners in the land. Uh, in the land who'd settled in the land and had certain privileges and responsibilities. These foreigners were people who'd come to Israel because they heard of the greatness. He says, listen, when there are people coming to the temple and the foreigners from other countries and they come here and they're seeking the true God and they want answers, God, would you please hear them? You know that's the same today when we present the truth of the gospel and someone hears and it said, I want to know more about God. And they begin to know and they begin to say, God, would you please help me to know truth? There are stories of those you know, in, resident, in, in certain tribes around the world who said there's got to be truth. There has to be a creator. We want to know more about him. And sure enough, years later, God will send some missionary or someone to them to give them the truth of the gospel because they're searching for the true God. And so Solomon here in the same like fashion saying, God, would you please hear their prayers? It was the responsibility of Israel to be a light to the world. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 60, would you look with me here? We read through verse 54. 1 Kings 8, verse 60. That all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is none else. When Israel lives their life in a way that is pleasing to the Lord, they act as a light to the world. From the very beginning of the nation of Israel, God had called Abraham and Sarah, <clears throat> excuse me, from Ur of the Chaldees. He declares that he wants Israel to be a blessing. I want you to look with me at Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, as we look at this. Genesis chapter, we'll come back to 1 Kings, but Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 in the original, I mean, Genesis chapter 11, you find God first speaking to Abraham. But in Genesis chapter 12, uh, Abraham leaving Ur of the Chaldees, and he takes Terah, his father, with him, and Lot goes with him. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, into a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. What's he saying here? He says, listen, everyone on the earth is going to know about you. What happened when Israel got out of Egypt? The world knew about Israel's exodus. 
They knew about the Red Sea crossing. They knew about the dry crossing on the Jordan River. They would know about this. I mean, Rahab, the Gibeonites, they said, we know that you defeated them. We know what you did to, uh, to those who were in the, the desert and how you destroyed them. We heard about it. So they've heard about the power and the might and the majesty of God. Here are slaves, a large number of them, but here are slaves who are not warriors, 400 years imprisoned in Egypt under harsh conditions, and they come out, they come into the desert, and sometime during that period of time, they are victorious in battle. That's amazing. Here are these slaves, all they know is backbreaking work. They don't know anything about war. And yet God helps them to be warriors and victorious there in the promised land. The Jews would pray that, you know, in regards to being a blessing. To, in Psalm 67, God be merciful unto us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us, Selah, that we, that thy way may be known upon earth, thy saving health among all nations. So Israel is saying, God, we want, doesn't matter who they are, whether it's foreigners or not, we want them to know you. Number six, Solomon prays in verses 40 and 45, 40, yeah, 44 and 45, excuse me, about the armies in battle. It was a holy war. When God sent his people into battle, he says, God, please hear us. Please help us. You know, in any battle that we may have in our life, any opposition that we may have with family or others, workplace, government, opposition, our responsibility is to pray towards the Lord and ask Him to fight the battle for us. You know, in 1 Samuel 23, verses 1 and 2 about David, then they told David, saying, Behold, the Philistines fight against Kilah, and they rob the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and smite these Philistines? And the Lord said unto David, Go and smite the Philistines and save Kilah. What is David doing? He's saying, God, I need to know that you're with me. How many times do we rush into a battle, do we rush into a conflict, do we rush into some sort of disagreement, and we don't put the Lord in the very, we don't make sure that that's of God. And we end up coming away from that battle scarred and hurt. Do you realize in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul would include as a, uh, as an article of a soldier's equipment, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make, the, make known the mystery of the gospel. That's Ephesians 6, 18 and 19. What is he saying? Paul is saying, please pray for me that I would have the boldness to do what I've been called to do. So Paul understands, God, listen, I'm going into battle on a daily basis. You and I are going into battle on a daily basis uh, as we're in the workplace, around the work, you know, we're in society, amongst family, amongst friends, amongst whomever. We're going into battle and we need to know that when we engage with others, that we're doing so in a spirit with God with us. The French writer Voltaire, who was much a hater of Christianity, said, it, it is said that God is always on the side of the heaviest battalions. So what he's saying is, listen, 
God's always with whoever has the, you know, whoever has the most might and the heaviest, you know, the biggest military and the best weapons, they're the one that God's on the side with. But the truth is that God is on the side of those who pray in his will. Gideon went up against hundreds of thousands of people, and he only did it with 300 people, and God smote them. I mean, there were thousands and thousands of people that he came up against, and God gave the victory. So the victory isn't based upon my intellectual prowess. It isn't based upon how good of an orator or how good I can uh, defend in apologetics or philosophy or whatever. The battle is won, am I going and doing what God wants me to do? Because if God says, just let them talk, then let them talk, and it's not going to matter if I resist. Because I'll only get injured in battle. Number seven, he, he, he goes on in verses 46 to 53, defeat in captivity here. First Kings chapter 8. The pronoun they here in verse 46, it refers to, to Israel. If they sin against thee, right? So he understands that the, is, the nation of Israel is prone to sin, as you and I are. But God's special blessings and his covenant are on them. And disobedient, disobedience brings great consequences. So as they disobey God's law and imitate the sins of their idolatrous neighbors, the Jews would be, uh, you know, sinning against a flood of light. And they're sinning against the Lord. They're sinning against the very covenant that they had made with God. And so they experience defeat and captivity. They experience, you know, Assyria conquers the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom are the ten tribes of Israel. You have Judah and Benjamin that are the... the uh, what would be known as Judah, uh, you'll find in, oftentimes in the scriptures, um, here in 1 Kings and, and 2 Samuel and those like that, after Rehoboam happens, you'll notice the king of Israel and the king of Judah. The king of Israel is not the king of all 12 tribes, it's the king of 10 tribes. Because at Rehoboam, uh, Rehoboam was going to be, he was Solomon's son, Rehoboam, a little bit of preview here, Rehoboam, when the people said, please lessen our burdens and lessen our taxes. Rehoboam said, I'm going to make it harder on you. Quit your whining, essentially. So Jeroboam steps in as a leader and said, hey, I'll lead you. So ten tribes go with Jeroboam. He would be the first king of Israel. Two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they stay with Rehoboam, and then they become the king of Judah, that area. So if you would, in, in historical uh, accounts. But we find... A terrible event was predicted by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, Micah, Jeremiah, also talks about the Babylonian captivity. Now, I want you to understand with me, Jeremiah 25, 11, And this whole land shall be a desolation and astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So Jeremiah says, listen, because you've resisted God, you've gone into idolatry, you no longer, you've profaned the house of God, you're going to be a captive in Israel for 70, and, and excuse me, in Babylon for 70 years. Now, I want you to look with me at a passage of scripture here, a famous passage, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. You see, God knows what is best for us. And you said, why would he allow such suffering? He allows the suffering because the suffering tells us and shows us how, in, how incapable and how weak in strength I really am. 
I mean, you take the most arrogant, proud, strong person on earth today and you put them in an area where there's a huge hurricane, where there's a massive, hur- uh, massive tornado, where there is a tsunami, you name it, you put them in a place of a natural disaster, any strong person, and they're going to be like nothing, like a twig that could be easily broken. I mean, it really shows us of how powerful God is. God's in control of the climate. And so the, the pride of man, God says, listen, I'm going to bring you to the place where you understand you're not in control. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall you call upon me, and you shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. What's he saying? You're going into captivity. Life's going to be very difficult. But I'm doing this I'm, because I have thoughts of peace toward you. I don't do it for evil. I want you to call upon me. I want you to pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And you shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. And I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity. And I will gather you from all the nations. And from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord, and I will bring you again into the place whence I cause you to be carried away captive. God's saying, listen, I'm going to let you go into the valley of life, some of the deepest, darkest days of your life, because I want you to call out to me and pray to me, and I want you to seek for me with all of your heart, because you have nowhere else to turn. And then you'll understand who I am. When the prophet Daniel understood what Jeremiah wrote, he began to pray that God would keep his promises and set the nation free. Daniel chapter, excuse Deuteronomy 30 and Daniel chapter 9. Many of the believing Jews of the remnant also interceded there, and God would stir Cyrus, king of Persia, to allow some Jews to return home to rebuild. Solomon gave several reasons why the Lord should forgive his people when they repented and returned to him. Israel was his special people, separated from other nations to glorify God and accomplish his mission on earth. So he closes his prayer out by asking the Lord to keep his eyes upon the temple and uh, the people who would worship him there. Second Chronicles chapter 6, let's look at this. Second Chronicles chapter 6. Verse 40 through 42. He says, Now, my God, let I beseech thee, thine eyes be open, and let thine ears be attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. Now, therefore, arise, O Lord God, into thy resting place, thou and the ark of thy strength. Let thy priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation. Let thy saints rejoice in goodness. O Lord God, turn not away the face of thine anointed. Remember the mercies of David, thy servant. You find really a benediction in the same sense in Psalm 132. Look with me here at the end of really his discussion here in the temple and the dedication of it, Psalm 132, uh, of what Solomon is giving to the people. Psalm 132, verse 8. Psalm 132, verses 8 through 10. Arise, O Lord, into thy rest, thou and the ark of thy strength. 
Let thy priests be clothed with righteousness, and let thy saints shout for joy. For thy servant David's sake, turn not away the face of thine anointed. It is here that Israel is no longer a pilgrim people, and they still need the Lord to guide and help them. You can find in Numbers chapter 10, 35 and 36, in the words of Moses, And it came to pass when the ark set forward, that Moses said, Rise up, Lord. And let thine enemies be scattered, let them that hate thee flee before thee. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, unto the many thousands of Israel. So when the ark has a permanent place. So thanks to David's victories, God had given rest to Israel. They were able to build the temple. And Andrew Bonar, would say, a theologian of yesteryear, said, Let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. He's saying, Listen, after you've gone into victory and you've come out, you know, you've come out victorious, you still need to be as watchful as you were going into the battle. We need to be always vigilant and on hand and, and need to understand that, listen, here is a momentous uh, historical occasion at the dedication of the first temple unto God. It's an incredible time. And so Solomon closes his prayer with a plea that God... The Lord will not reject him, the anointed king. And remember the sure mercies of his servant David. Referring to the covenant that God had made that on David's throne will sit a man forever. And you find that in Psalm 89, 2 Samuel 7, in the Davidic covenant. Now that involves the sure mercies of David, involves the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to be the Savior of the world, Acts 13, 32 through 40. But here at the conclusion of the temple, and we'll talk more about it being a house of praise next week, but Solomon has these seven requests, understanding that, listen, we are now no longer pilgrims. We're in the very land that God had given to us and promised to us from Abraham, our great forefather, many, 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 many years ago, hundreds of years ago. We are now settled, but now let us keep our eyes and our focus in the right place and let us put God first. Because if we don't, we understand that judgment will come. You know, that's the same in our lives. If we don't keep our focus upon the Lord, God will put his judging hand upon us and life will become very uncomfortable. And so what we must understand is God's purpose and place, uh, not only upon the Lord Jesus Christ, but also upon the place of worship, the church. If someone's neglecting the church, it's a very bad place to be. And we need to make God first in the church, and the worship of God ought to be preeminent in our lives. And if we neglect it, what we need to do is get back into faithfulness to God and to His house, there, which we have in this day and age in the local church. Let's go, Lord, and ask for His blessing upon this time. We'll be dismissed, and we'll come to the 11 o'clock hour. But I just want to challenge you, uh, as you think upon that, the sure mercies of, of God, and, and really the, the prayer of Solomon here, God, please just hear us. And you know what the truth is, every time that Israel would really cry out to God, as seen in the scriptures, that God would hear them. When they were legitimately repented and legitimately confessed, God says, listen, I'll hear your prayer, and I'm going to come along and help you. And that's a good thing, because it lets us know that, listen, we can mess up, and God's going to come back, and he's going to help us to get right. Sometimes it takes some time, but God will help us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your wonderful grace. Father, we thank you for your graciousness and kindness. God, I'm so thankful for your mercy. Lord, it sure is a wonderful, beautiful thing that, Lord, we can cry out to you, confess our sins. Lord, as we're convicted of our sin, Lord, that we can make it right. 
Father, that a stranger can pray and desire to know more about you, and Lord, you reveal yourself. You're not hidden. You're not some mystery for a select few. You're for all people, and Lord, I'm thankful for that. Father, I'm thankful that you've given us a place where we can corporately meet with other believers, and, and Lord, we can worship you even to this day. And so, Father, I pray that we would have our hearts aright and settled upon thee. I love you. I thank you for being such a gracious and kind Savior. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen.